0: Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts.
1: I'm uh, curious as we start the program tonight, would you be at all surprised if I told you for lifelong Bay Areans that the last three weeks have been the wettest in 161 years in the San Francisco Bay Area? And my goodness, if you look at some of the devastation between the Oakland Hills parts of the South Bay, down Santa Cruz Way, and uh, up north in Marin County and into Sonoma. Uh, No surprise about that. Well, I hope on this uh, Tuesday that you're staying dry and delighted to have you along with us for another edition of Lifeline. The name indeed is Craig Roberts, and we are here each Tuesday through Friday to address issues that impact your life and your world. And we're going to aim to do more of the same on today's Program. I, I want to start with a topic, and if you've been following DC News over the last couple of weeks since we came uh, back from the christmas and new year's holiday you know that there is a new session of congress that has been sworn in and uh, it has been wrought with of course plenty of excitement and drama uh, not least of which speaker of the house kevin mccarthy 15 runs at it before he finally got the nod and while attention is being paid to what will the legislation session look like what investigations will be opened up what all will be done to uh, handle the people's business there's been a bit of a sideshow taking place now let me preface my remarks by kind of giving you some context his business background and list of successes and accomplishments is impressive he's outgoing and articulate he comes from everyday people And yet he's overcome great odds to become not only a successful Wall Street financier, but as the grandson of Holocaust survivors made it to the People's House, the U.S. Congress, as a newly elected representative of New York's 3rd District. The story of George Santos would all be so impressive if it weren't for just one thing. It's all a lie. All of it. His wealth, a lie. His education, a lie. His resume, a lie. Even the part about being Jewish and the grandson of Holocaust survivors, all one big lie. So it begs the question, who's failed here? Lack of due diligence on behalf of the party, lack of due diligence on behalf of newspapers and media in that section of New York to not properly and adequately uncover this man's seemingly entirely made up background. And who ultimately is going to hold him accountable? Most shockingly, with the sole exception of perhaps um, some significant questions related to his campaign financing and funding, it doesn't appear as if any of this is necessarily illegal. Oh, immoral to be sure, but not necessarily illegal. And it seems, if you've been following the story, that each and every day, something new, something more outlandish than the last story makes its way to the surface, which, at the end of the day, makes you wonder, what's the real agenda here? I mean, is there a sense that the American people are that gullible, that ignorant, that non-discerning, that you can pretty much make your resume up out of thin air, get elected Congress, and nobody will say a word about it? Is it indicative of an alarming trend going on in American politics today, where it seems as if truth has not only taken a back seat, but (laughs) seemingly not even welcome in the room anymore. Well, with some insights on this, we're joined now by publisher and author Joyce Cordy. Joyce is the founder of Reimagine America. She's been involved in the world of corporate management for many, many decades, highly successful businesswoman, and um, has been a Sacramento and D.C. watcher for many, many years and joins us now. And uh, Joyce, is always, a privilege and an honor to have you on the program. I just want to first get your reaction to this story. As I suggest, it seems as if every single day that passes, yet one more tall tale that George Santos, even if that's his real name, fabricated in order to essentially dupe the voters of the third district in New York into giving him a job. And I I find it interesting because as he's been asked by not only growing members of the Republican Party in New York City to step down, um, others, too, saying, how can you possibly do this? And his response is, well, the people of New York elected me and I'm going to stay to serve. The problem, of course, is the people of New York did not elect him but rather elected what appeared to be an image of him, an image that has turned out to be wholly false.
2: And you are so correct. They elected an image. We aren't even sure, Craig, if is real until he ran Congress we you're absolutely right
1: Voted, for, Oh, Joyce! I'm afraid we might have lost you. Uh, can you jump in there, Miles, and see? Uh, uh, sounds like she's on a cell phone and maybe kind of a kind of a rough connection there. Joyce Cordy is with us today. You've heard her many times down through the years. Publisher and founder of Reimagine America. Information on the web at reimagineamerica.org. We're talking about uh, the whole issue of George Santos. And, and while you might say, Craig, we're in California. What, what do we care what uh, um, folks in New York City elect to the House? Well, you know, ultimately the votes that are made, whether they be from California, New York City, Mississippi, or anywhere else in the United all ultimately potentially affect us, and of course, the broader question at heart here, and that is: is George Santos and this behavior the problem, or a symptom of the problem? Okay, Joyce, I understand we've got you back again. Sorry about that. We had a little bit of a, a rough uh, cell phone connection. Please go ahead.
2: Okay, so let's 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 start with. I think you covered a lot of the. Baseline of his embellishment. I mean, the people didn't vote for him. They for the, for George Devolder Santos, whatever his name is. They voted for an image. Now, funny thing happened on the way to the farm. But the National Republican Congressional Committee had more than a little knowledge of this. Late in 2021, and they still backed him. They still gave him money. They still endorsed him. He then went on in his nebulous fundraising operations, which is probably where you know the feds are looking. Uh, he went on to impersonate in order to to get more campaign contributions of large. Amounts, amounts that are, by the way, illegal in direct contribution and can only go through a PAC. A PAC is not supposed to be, it's supposed to be completely independent of the candidate. And yet, he was calling people, impersonating Kevin McCarthy's chief of staff. And today, Kevin McCarthy let him have two committee assignments. They just put a con man, and let's call him what he is, he is a con man, on both the Small Business Committee and the Science, Space, and Technology Committee, so much for for taking care of Kevin's buddies in Silicon Valley. I mean, it's outrageous. As you were saying while we were working on the telephone problem, who who is disadvantaged, who suffers? Because of this appointment, this election, this whatever you want to call it at this point, uh, the refusal of the Republican Congre- uh, caucus to force the man to resign in shame, who suffers the most? Is it just the constituents in Nassau County, New York, or is it all of us? And I would contend in a house with a four-seat majority, a guy who is so easily compromised, including having some friends who are cousins of Russian oligarchs who gave money to his campaign, um, that a man so totally compromised is a risk to the nation, especially when the House rules now allow security briefings to be widely circulated within the house members the Republican House membership at large rather than only the gang of apes. Let that one sit in your head for a minute. A man so compromised is going to have access to top secret information. He would have that access on the science Space and Technology Committee. What are these people thinking? This is not liberal versus conservative, progressive versus conservative. This is honest, law abiding versus criminality. Well,
1: you know what I find shocking about this is the fact and I you know, I, I, I understand the narrow margin in the House. I know that Speaker McCarthy finds himself in a very awkward position here. And I recognize, too, that ultimately questions related to campaign financing and financial disclosures, as you just alluded to, will likely wind up being George Santos's unraveling. In fact, I would be shocked if six months from now he is still in office. I think equally, though, shocking is the notion that None of this is considered to be illegal behavior. And while he's owned up to some of it and suggesting that he might have, quote unquote, embellished his resume, the fact of the matter is he made the whole thing up, lock, stock and barrel, every bit of it, every aspect apparently in attempt to try and make him appear to be something that he is definitely in reality not in order to attract voters. But there's another dynamic to this that I want to get to after the break that I also find troubling, and I, and I wanna spend a moment highlighting this, Joyce, for a very specific reason, and that is that as, as history and time passes, the, the, the reality of past significant moments in history grow dimmer and dimmer, and certainly in current modern-day education, less and less emphasis is being put on some of these events. And so what I find also terribly problematic is the notion that someone could make up a story that is clearly intended to engender a sense of awe and sympathy and maybe in some quarters relatability by claiming to be connected to not just the community, But to outright claim that one's grandparents are survivors of one of the worst events in human history, certainly singularly one of the the largest, if not the largest organized mass program or, or mass execution of a people group. And for a person to use that as a means of manipulating voters for personal gain... It's not only extremely troubling, but even more so when, as I alluded to a moment ago, we get further and further down the road and the memories of those events grow dimmer and dimmer. And the focus on the significance of those events in an effort to never repeat them again in human history grows less and less of a priority. This notion that someone can just sort of cavalierly make these sorts of claims Uh, is something that ought to instill outrage in every one of us. And if it doesn't instill outrage, then I have to wonder whether or not power and partisan is more important than propriety and legitimacy. Joyce Cordy with us today, publisher of Reimagine America. Information available on the web at reimagineamerica.org. That's reimagineamerica.org. What became of opposition research and what would ever possess an individual to make up stories related to one of the most horrific events in 20th century history? We'll talk about that next as our conversation with Joyce Cordy continues here on this edition of Lifeline.
0: And now, back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: Undoubtedly, there are probably plenty of people that have um, elaborated a bit, fudged slightly on the details related to their resume in an effort to try and get that perfect job. Rare, though, the individual that would just make every single bit of it up. Education, background, employment, income, all of it. In an effort to become a member of the United States Congress, which I guess demonstrates how attractive the job can be, not from a position of helping the people, but rather from a position of power and influence. Joyce Cordy is with us today from Rio Grande in America. We're talking about the case of George Santos. And, you know, I think a lot of this, though, completely, Joyce, at face value, unforgivable. Uh, there are nevertheless some depths to which he reached that go so far beyond the pale I found it all unconscionable and then some. And, of course, I'm referring to specifically what appears to be the dog and pony show that he put on before the Republican Jewish Committee in claiming not only to be Jewish, but in claiming that his grandparents survived the Holocaust and escaped Europe to Brazil and, of course, all that sounds well and good and makes you seem like the hometown hero and having an incredible uh, family that overcome great odds, only for that to be discovered to be a complete lie as well. I, what is your reaction when you, when you hear of, of someone for political gain is willing to go that far in fabricating a story?
2: I mean, I barely have words for it. I, let's try contempt, as you know, because we've known each other for years. Long association with the Republican Jewish Coalition, um, and I am a member of the Legacy of Light uh, Foundation of the Holocaust Museum. My parents being uh, Holocaust refugees and the only survivors. My grandparents, aunts, uncles, cousins. Everyone died at Auschwitz, so I don't even have I don't even have words. But underlying all of this is why everybody took this fresh-faced kid at face value, and nobody the oppo- opposition research his only team in late twenty twenty one had uncovered enough information to go to him and say, you know, you should bow out of this race, preserve your opportunity for another time, because there is all this stuff about you that's not true. And he didn't take their advice, as we've already talked about. Um, three of the four, the other, all four of the majority that Kevin enjoys um, are those four seats in new york so let's thank lee zeldin who turned out not to be able to knock off the Yoakum, but he certainly did have coattails in upstate new york now you can't say that i can't okay um but but what santos did is so beyond contempt it's pathologic and how you know the four, three of the four the other three people of new congress members from upstate new york all republicans have all condemned him why kevin mccarthy won't won't condemn him is beyond belief but there's another bigger point to this than you know the rjc putting out a statement saying Oh my God, he hoodwinked us and we'll never allow him to come near us again. Okay. That's fine and dandy. But big part of this, there was opera research. But why didn't it reach the voters? Because our news media is one, so fractured and siloed. And two, because our, our local news media has been, been so weakened by, you know, the movement of advertising dollars, etc., to the Internet, so we don't have strong enough local press to pick up that opposition research in a, you know, little bitty congressional district in New York when you have this big national election going on and inform the citizens in that community because they don't have a local newspaper. They don't have local radio. You, Craig, perform an invaluable service to the Bay Area as a local news and commentary figure who's highly respected. You... If you'd known this kind of information, and you'd been in Nashua County in late 21 or early 22, you would have been screaming from the rafters about his duplicity, and that's a big part
1: of the problem. Well, and I you think the, the other thing too. I think the other thing too, Joyce, that's so problematic here is the fact that that he was. Able to get away with it. I mean, a a lot has been laid at the feet of George Santos, and rightfully so. But the fact that he believed that there would be such a degree of lack of critical thinking and questioning. and I mean, for example, at one point in an interview, talking about his background as a financier, and he claimed some pretty outlandish rates of return and went on to explain how he is managing a hedge fund worth $1.5. Billion dollars, that's billion with a B, and that the average investor had about $125,000 invested. And nobody stopped to even do the simple math and say, well, a hedge fund with an average investment of $125,000 and it's got a $1.5 billion value to it would suggest that you'd have to have some 12,000. Clients that you're managing, which you know on face value, (laughs) to the math, uh, there are thousand different clients every week that you have to engage with, and do that for twelve months of the year. It's an impossibility. And I I think, I think what, what, what is, what I think is really heartbreaking here, Joyce, is not just that there was a lack of opposition research, not just that there were members of the Republican Party there in Nassau County that looked the other way, not just that the press did not do its job. But the fact that apparently there was a degree to which George Santos must have felt confident enough that he could run this con and that there was a likelihood that nobody was going to ask any questions. Not the local press, not the national press, not the RNC, not the voters. And I think that's the sad part, that he was able to get away with it because he knew he could.
2: He didn't, Greg. The... the National the, the National Congressional House Committee gave the man a bunch of money after more than half of his campaign staff had quit because they were they knew it was a con. So it was, it was the idea that poor George Zimmerman, who was the go- Democrat who ran against him, wasn't well enough funded to be able to go on radio and television and and use the research. So it was cynical. It was cynical. And what it says is that power is more important than the people. Power for the sake of power, for the accumulation of power and wealth. Never noticed that anybody leaves Congress than when they got there. Okay. Yeah. Is is it what it is? It's okay. The ends justify the means. But let's go a step further. This con man is not stupid. The the because the U.S. Constitution has only two requirements for a member of Congress. You must be a citizen of the United States, and you must be at least twenty-five years of age. What the Congress? and the uh, does not address is the is is the ability of the people if they are duped to seek redress there is you know you can you want yeah we we just went through this about 15 months ago if you want to recall a governor for good reasons or bad, you can get enough people to sign a petition and you get to have an election to recall them. There is no such mechanism in, in, in Congress. And if you get elected to Congress, getting you out of there, barring catching you, you know, in, 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 in unspeakable sexual misconduct or actually sentenced to prison there is no way to remove you and even then it takes a two-thirds vote of the house of representatives to remove you and kevin ain't got the two-thirds
1: no by no means and and that 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 really raises some serious questions and i'm sure that there are many listening right now that are kind of set back on their heel with the idea that There is no mechanism by which he can be held accountable, short of, as you mentioned, you know, being taken out of there in handcuffs, which may happen before it's all said and done. But in terms of accountability to the people, look, even he himself has said, well, I got I got elected and I'm going to stay here to represent the people until one hundred and forty two thousand. That's the rough number that voted for him. Tell me otherwise. Well, the problem with that is that they're stuck with you because the chance to do that won't be for another two years. Meanwhile, who they voted for and who they got to entirely different individuals. And I've got to imagine, with all due respect to our founding fathers, knowing the gravitas in which this experiment in, in freedom and democracy represented, probably never could imagine that there would be such an egregious effort at malfeasance, political malpractice, if we'll call it that, Um, And chicanery that someone would go that far, get elected, and then essentially thumb their nose at the authorities and say, well, catch me if you can, because you don't have the goods on me, because there's no mechanism by which I might be held accountable. And, you know, as I suggested before the break, and we'll come back with more in just a moment, maybe the bigger problem here is the way in which we're learning more and more about the system Being broken. Now, I won't say irrevocably broken, but there are clearly a lot of areas that, uh, you know, like a house that's got some cracks in the stucco, are in desperate need of patching. And I heard someone comment recently just in terms of the overall situation that we've seen in the Congress for. Many, many years now. This is not just this Congress or the last Congress, but going back for years in terms of mismanagement, misspending, all of it, that you could probably select 435 names out of the phone book. And they would do as good a job, if not even better. Pretty rough accusation. I understand that. But it makes you pause for a moment and think. If an individual can run for higher office and be this blatant about manipulation of the facts and this confident that it won't be a problem, what does it say about what that person thinks of not only the United States Congress, but the American people? Joyce Cordy with us today from Reimagine America. Information on the web at reimagineamerica.org. dot org. We'll take a brief time out. The big question is then next, what to do next? How how do we prevent? When we know every politician plays fast and loose with the truth, we just haven't seen one completely, totally fabricate a resume to get a job in Congress. The question now is, is this country worth it to put up guardrails to make sure that this can't happen with this sort of ease ever again. I think it is worth it. The question is, how do we do just that? I'm Craig Roberts. Back to our conversation with Joyce Cordy as Lifeline continues here on KFAX.
0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: Joyce Cordy with Reimagined America with us today. We've been talking about the controversy in D.C. over the seating of George Santos as a congressman representing the 3rd District of New York City. All of that will likely, as investigations now kick up between the House Ethics Committee and the uh, the Federal Election Commission, that uh, his tenure perhaps in service in Congress is probably going to be a very short-lived one. But it begs questions about guardrails and what needs to change. And Joyce, you've invested a lot of hard work and hours educating people as to ways in which we can reimagine America in such a fashion uh, that we're able to address some of these significant Deficiencies in this case in the political arena. What, what in your mind is necessary here in order to try and, if not prevent, at least reduce the possibility of American voters being duped in such a fashion ever again?
2: Well, I think we start with there. It's it's a three part answer. All right. In in the first place, you and I have filled out applications for employment, right? In our lives. And one of the things it says before you sign that application is if you lied on this application, you're subject to termination. Now, all Congress members like to tell little white lies. You know, they can think of, oh, we're going to tackle inflation as being aspir- aspirational. But to lie about your academic credentials or your work history or where your campaign money comes from etc should be automatically disqualifying or as we call it in the private sector a firing offense that's number one you know you got to be honest number two you know the the subject of term limits came up in the fifteen rounds of negotiations to get Kevin the the uh, Kevin McCarthy the, the gavel, and you know term limits are kind of would it's not going to pass because there are too many people like Jim Jordan whose aspiration in life is just to remain in Congress and and, and be a thorn in everyone's side, um, but but uh, term limits are not. As we know in California, a bad thing. It does bring new blood into the system, and so um, one thing that we know, and one thing that George Santos is counting on, um, if he can escape Brazilian justice, that would that would kind of take care of it. Um, is that ninety eight percent of of a, of a lifetime career in Congress is winning your first election. If you get there, you can stay there. Now, that I blame on the American people because we hold all the all the uh, surveys tell us, we hold members of Congress in lower esteem than used car salesmen. If we think they're that bad at what they do and that dishonest and and non-trustworthy why don't we keep re-electing them so as you said you know the people have a a stake in this but number three is that we need to put more upfront guardrails into the process Um, and so here's an idea that i've been had in the back of my head that may end up after a, 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 in Reimagine this year. And that is when Tommy Tuberville, you know, the former Alabama football coach, entered the United States Senate. And he was asked, what are the three parts of government? He said the House, the Senate, and the White House. <laughs> I think we ought, if you want to run for Congress, Craig. What would be wrong with saying you have to pass a a basic civics test called the naturalization test. You have to pass a test on US history and civics in order to get become a US citizen. Why should we not expect members of Congress to be able to pass that test in order to be in order to qualify as a candidate?
1: yeah you're right and then added to that the notion that there are many that that swear to uphold the Constitution that they have never read and have a scant familiarity with and it's it's it, it really is shameful that that a, a a individual about to become a naturalized citizen is required to know more about the functioning of our government than somebody who's back in Washington DC actually running it Joyce we appreciate the time Joyce Cordy with Reimagine America information available again on the web at re- reimagineamerica.org. That's reimagineamerica.org. Brad Dakis, constitutional lawyer, is going to join us coming up in a moment, going around the corner. By the way, some totals I just ran across here in the wire service during the last break. You wonder how wet has it been in the Bay Area? Between the 31st of December and yesterday, the 16th, San Francisco so far, not including today, has received 21 inches of rain. Castro Valley, 27 inches of rain. Boulder Creek, 43 inches of rain. And ready for it? You want to guess how much rain has fallen on Big Sur? 84 inches. 84 inches on Big Sur since December the 31st. I'm going to get a rowboat, I think. (laughs) We're back with more as Lifeline continues.
0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right,
1: welcome back to the conversation. It seems like a pretty logical bill, one that any person of conscious and a sense of value of life would say, yeah, I definitely can get behind this. The notion that if a Infant, if a baby succeeds in surviving an abortion... Uh, be it an attempted one, a botched one, or whatever the case might be, that health care providers should be required to immediately look after the needs of that child because the child is essentially, in spite of the attempt that it was an abortion, has been born alive. Well, you'd think that that would be a slam dunk, and certainly on a narrow margin, the bill passed in the United States House, although the likelihood of it ever seeing the light of day in the Democrat-controlled Senate is slim to none. With more on this story and uh, details regarding Regarding the Born Alive Infants Protection Act, we are joined by Brad Dakis, constitutional lawyer, founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute. And, Counselor, as always, uh, great to have you with us. Happy New Year to you. Um, I, this seems to be, just reading the language of the bill, kind of a done deal. I mean, who couldn't stand behind something like this? And yet, apparently, there's well over 200 people in the House who couldn't find a way to stand behind it.
3: Yeah, it is pretty surprising that it, it passed uh, two twenty to two ten by only ten votes. Uh, it was almost entirely on party based on party line, with the exception of one Democrat, Henry Cuellar of, of Texas, who voted in favor of this this reasonable measure to protect uh, born babies. Um, you know, it's it's interesting. You know that uh, all this doing is just simply saying, hey, if the, if the baby's born, then you need to treat the baby the same as any other baby. You can't kill the baby just because you didn't succeed in killing the baby in the womb. You can't with an abortion. You can't now kill the baby. You know, it could be you know crying and you know it, it, you know it would be just catastrophic. And yet, um, yet in fact, you know, this narrowly passed the house, and you know it would possibly have a chance in the Senate, uh, but for the fact that the uh, the, the election turned out. Uh, with one critical or two critical Senate seats uh, going going one direction, which is is going to stop this from going to the floor in the Senate, unfortunately.
1: Yeah, and, and it's, it's sad because, you know, we can almost anticipate that given the current makeup. And, and you know, I, I, I guess the big overarching question here, Counselor, is that we, we used to, as Americans, be able to find some kind of common ground in either similar beliefs, similar values, similar enemies. Um, I, I look at the overwhelming way, for example, in which the United States Congress, both Democrat and Republican, supported then-President FDR with the announcement of the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor and the need for there to be a unified American response, not only for the sake of our own nation, but ultimately for the sake of, of Europe. Uh, and I almost have to wonder, if those events were to transpire tomorrow, could we ever be able to find enough support across the aisle in order to get the job done? And, and my fear is the answer is no. And and sadly, even in a, in a post 9-11 environment where, at least in recent memory, we Seem to be the most united. More and more, it seems as if we are the most divided, especially along moral lines.
3: Yeah, and I think that's an important observation. The fact that it's on moral lines—something so basic and fundamental as just the dignity of, of human life itself—and uh, that you have, uh, the, you know, the House just with only ten votes passing something that is just so obvious. Uh, any baby that's born, uh, he's crying, his arms are held out, you know, wanting his mom to take him and, or hold him. And and, uh, and then to, to that little baby girl to be just killed with the doctor and to think that that should be legal. It's 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 uh, it's, it's insane. It's barbaric. Uh, it is good to see, though, that the Republicans early on, right up from the go, met their promise. They passed this Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act. And uh, I think in the future, uh, after 2024, there's a good chance that we may see it uh, become law. And uh, that could be uh, a wonderful step in the right direction of just respecting basic fundamental human
1: dignity of life. Yeah, And the sad commentary on this, and you've kind of gone to the heart of the matter, that, that for a big portion of our history, uh, while we might have had differences amongst ourselves, uh, different parties, different faiths, different income, different stations in life, uh, different family backgrounds in terms of the, our nations of origin and things of that sort, the one thing that we had in common was our united sense of humanity and our our sense of values of right and wrong. And whether you came at it from a Judeo perspective, a a Christian perspective, a Judeo-Christian perspective, or or maybe somebody that was not necessarily religious per se, but nevertheless still held the teachings of of Judeo-Christian ethics uh, in in value, and suddenly now even that seems to have gone by the wayside. Is it any wonder that it's become an increasingly difficult country to not only govern, but to get a sense of what our our united belief is that used to hold us together, and now sadly it seems to be driving us further apart. And, and undoubtedly, the vote on this first post row um, bill um, is demonstrative of that sense of. Division. I guess the big question is, as you've alluded to, and I touched on the same, the likelihood of this seeing the light of day in the United States Senate is probably slim at this juncture. Is this Is this largely then a bill that is symbolic, or do you think there's a way in which there can still be a reaching across the aisle to be able to come together and say, at the very least, when it comes to protecting a child who, uh, while perhaps rejected in the process of an abortion, nevertheless manages to survive? Uh, that we, can, we can't find some means for all of us to agree that that child deserves protection and a shot at life?
3: Yeah, I used to work for U.S. Senator Phil Graham, so I will say uh, nothing is impossible <laughs> with politics. Uh, you may have some senators looking at the next election saying, gosh, do I really want this hanging over my neck, that I voted for You know, something that was going to protect babies from being killed after they're born? Uh You know, there's I think there's room for that uh, pressure. It's not expected, um, but it's it's worth a try. At the very least, we need to keep it at the forefront of the discussions and the American conscience, and uh, not not let this one go. If it does pass, it will it it will basically truncate uh, the law that we have in California allowing infanticide. Uh, That would be a great thing uh, to do. What um, uh, it was was too difficult to do in the state legislature of California.
1: Right now. Brad is constitutional lawyer, founder, and president of the Pacific Justice Institute. We appreciate the update. And uh, once again, Happy New Year to you, my friend.
0: Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells.